Navigating the Storm, Episode 15, The Most Rewarding Thing. Hi, welcome to today's episode. I'm Anna Knight, a sometimes speech therapist and always a personal development coach. I'm on a mission to help women and non-binary people survive whatever life throws at them and come out the other side stronger and more authentically them than ever. So on this podcast, I chat to people about their life experiences. I ask them about their stories, what they've learned, the advice they have for people walking the same path. My guests may not necessarily be famous, although I would love to have Simone Biles on at some point. But what I love doing is having real conversations with people about topics that we might not normally bring up in polite conversation. But these are things that have shaped their lives, their minds and their worlds. Today I'm talking to Yoni Ejo, a registered social worker and adoption coach with personal experience of the system from both sides, as an adopted person herself and as the adopted mum of two now teenage girls. Yoni is a passionate advocate of adoption as a solution when children can't remain with their birth parents, but she also knows that adopters do not always get the full range of preparation that they need. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Anna. Good. And if you could just tell all our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure, happy to. Okay, my name's Yoni Ejo, and I'm by profession a social worker. I've been working within social care in the UK for over 30 years. I am also a person who was placed for adoption at 18 months old, having spent first year, over a year, in the care system with foster carers. And I was adopted by my own um, foster parents. I am passionate about adoption and I've also, with my civil partner, adopted two girls who are now nearly 18 and 19. So I've sort of got all of those perspectives, which I bring to a real passion and commitment to adoption. And I've also worked with foster carers for many years. So yeah, that's me. Wow, so quite a a professional and a personal interest in adoption then. Yeah, it's funny. I think um, I always tell people that I wasn't as good a social worker as I could be until I had children and I wasn't as good a social worker as I could be until I was subjected to the assessment from the carer's perspective and I think that definitely made me a much better worker because I think, you know, with the best intentions as professionals, we don't always know how it feels from the other side. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's been quite beneficial to have all those perspectives. And now I've been, for the last 18 months, I've been working with young people who left care. And so again, I'm seeing a different perspective in terms of how the care system and fostering and adoption and residential sort of when a young person comes out of that environment, how we're not always that brilliant at preparing young people for independence. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those facets have come together to inform me in the intention to build a training business around adoption 
because I think there's a lot of information about adoption. There's a huge amount of very academic books and reading and theories, but I don't always feel like adopters or foster carers have the opportunity to get practical advice. Mm-hmm. And I think for young people, quite often, people are quite reticent about saying, well, I think you need to do this or you need to do that in case they cause harm. But they yeah. don't always recognise that not having those conversations causes probably more harm than you could do having conversations about identity, about race, about young people's experience and how it feels to be in care. Yeah, and I think it's such a good point that you made there, actually experiencing that yourself as an adopter. It must give you a different perspective on the process that maybe other social workers who haven't gone through that are still thinking in that textbook way, like you say, the quite academic focus, where if 2020's taught us nothing, it's that life does not always follow the laid out path that it should do. Yes, absolutely. I think it's also made, I was going to say us as a nation, but probably as the world, people reflect in terms of what's really important, what they really value, and perhaps take on a different direction going forward. So, I I mean, I certainly hope that a lot of people who perhaps haven't previously thought about adoption might consider it as an option because there is such a need for adopters in the UK, in the US, across the world, really. In the UK, certainly there's a, a real mismatch between children waiting for adoption and prospective adopters. Um, nearly half of young people wait for an adopted family for longer than 18 months and each each day is precious and is a lost opportunity for that child to have a permanent home. Wow, and I hadn't realised that the wait was that long. I'm guessing that's an average as well, so there'll be some yeah. kids who are waiting even longer. Yeah, there is, sadly, and quite often we know who those young people will be. They will predominantly be children with potential health issues or disabilities. Um, there will be black and ethnic minority children wait longer than white children. Boys, in particular, wait longer. And so if you've got some or any of those issues, then it compounds for children to be waiting longer. Siblings tend to wait longer because of the difficulty and the challenges of recruiting adopters to care for more than one child at a time. Each delay has an impact on that child or that young person. It just makes it that little bit more difficult for them to settle into their forever family when they find one. And there's a lot of efforts to streamline the process and to reduce the waiting, but it's still a challenge. And I think for me, having worked in adoption recruitment services, I think what adoptive agencies don't always do is, is recruit the diversity of communities. I think it's really important that children have some common experience with their adopters. But I also know that what we don't want to do is to be waiting so long for that perfect match that actually the child's waiting months, if not years, longer than they should be. So I think it's quite a balance. But what I want to do as part of Diversity Adopt, which is the company that I'm building, is to encourage different communities to consider adoption that perhaps haven't previously. Mm. I think that adoption agencies aren't always very good at connecting to diverse communities. 
and therefore those communities don't really reflect the children who are coming into the care system. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that when we scheduled this interview, I started kind of becoming aware of, I live in an area where there's five or six local authorities very, very close together, so you can kind of drive through several in the same half hour. And a lot of them do have things about fostering and adoption up and around at the moment. But I started becoming really present to the fact that in all of those pictures, it was a a mum and a dad and a very young baby, all of them white. And it did just really make me think that even those images they're putting out there, they're not putting out the idea of diverse adoptions it's very traditional white nuclear family and i think that's a real shame i totally agree are there particular communities that you'd like to see increasing the amount of adoptions that happen i think that the fact that there is such a diverse group of young of children and young people within the care system means that adopters and foster carers should reflect the children and and young people being removed. And currently, sadly, for probably lots of different reasons, those children are disproportionately black and ethnic minorities. So I think every authority and every adoption agency has a responsibility to reach out to those communities, black Caribbean, um, black British, Asian communities, particularly the the communities that affect children in the care system. But I think it's important that we have a diversity because equally there are um, children whose parents have come from Europe, from India, Asia, the whole range. I mean, my experience was being transracially adopted and you do, you lose a sense of yourself and an understanding of yourself if your carers aren't proactive in celebrating that aspect of your background. And I think, you know, that's quite a big ask for white adopters who perhaps have not really had any reason to think about race prior to having a black child placed with them. And that's not a criticism, it's just a reality that white people don't necessarily have to speak and to think about race until it impacts on their lives. And so I think it's really important that if we are going to place children transracially and at the moment there are some situations where we do have to because of the numbers of children waiting for families, then we also have a responsibility to enable and empower those families to understand the impact of racism to start that journey of examining their own understanding and their own prejudices and also the things that they take for granted that actually perhaps aren't as black and white as if you grow up in a very white environment, you might think. What I'm finding both in my own experience and also in uh, supporting black children leaving care is that they don't always have the tools to understand about racism or they're not encouraged to understand about racism and therefore if they experience it, they struggle to manage it and also they presume it's about them as an individual mm-hmm. and they don't have the understanding of the context of it. And so for me, that's why it's really important that we start having those discussions in quite an open way and that we support each other, but in a, in a supportive environment and not one that is attacking or criticising because I know from 
you know, the research and from my experience and from talking to other people. There are so many messages that tell you what to think about people depending on what their race is and what their background is or what their gender is, that we're all susceptible to it. But we can only challenge that if we are conscious about it. Yeah, it's that cultural programming way that I think it's almost like we're constantly swimming in this sea of messages about different groups of people. There are people who might be looking to adopt who actually are coming from a position of privilege in terms of if they're white, if they've not had to go through anything. And that's not to say that they've done anything wrong. They just, it's a foreign experience to them at the moment. Are there things that you think would help people when they're in that situation of transracial adoption? I think there is. The thing for me is about researching and looking at what resources might be helpful to understand because you can't sit in somebody else's shoes so you do have to seek out information about what their life is like and what what the world looks like from their perspective. There are books, just really interesting series of videos called Challenging Conversation with a Black Man. There's one session where he does talk to two white adopters who've adopted three black children and they also have a birth child who's white. And it's quite an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. You can find it on YouTube. There's some really good books that are worth looking at. I'd be happy to put a list of suggested reading on my website if that would be helpful that people could look at, which is diversityadopt.com. And joining groups where you can talk to other transracially adopted adults and also to white adopters, I think that's really important and helpful. But I do think those groups can sometimes feel quite challenging for both parties, really, because they're coming from such different places. Yeah. And I was really struck by what you said earlier in terms of sometimes the support that the families need is the practical stuff as well. So even knowing how to look after, to care for your hair is very different as a white person versus a black person. Are there specific areas of practical support that families are asking for? I think there's quite a lot. I think at the moment, one of the key things, I did a couple of surveys within adoption groups to ask adopters what they would find useful in terms of training. And the first thing and the major thing that they talked about was therapeutic approaches Mm -hmm. and so that's the sort of stance that I'm taking at the moment to enable people to learn about therapy so I'll talk to you in a little bit about the course that, that we're doing as a response but I think they've also talked about the hair care and the skin care and having that sort of practical understanding about doing it but none of this is comfortable you know I'm not at all underestimating how challenging it can be sometimes to reflect and to manage the care of a child whose perhaps experience is unfamiliar with you. But I think also it's really joyous if you're open to it. It's incredibly empowering and interesting to learn, you know, hopefully learn about your adoptive child's heritage together. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other key pillars of things that adopters struggle with is contact with birth family. Yeah. 
And I think it is it's a real challenge. And I know from my personal experience, contact with birth family has been challenging over the years. We've had letterbox contact with both girls' mum. And that's sometimes been quite challenging. But I think it's so important, particularly if the child doesn't share your back- racial background, to involve birth families as far as you're, it's safe to do. And that might be simply to go and meet them and listen to them and understand where they came from and be accurate about where their family were from. Because otherwise, how can you truly know where your child comes from? Um, I think sometimes a doctor's sort of embarrassment about talking about race and talking about birth family can make it very hard for the adopted child to ask because they, you know, children are very perceptive, aren't they? And they know when they're asking something that makes you uncomfortable as a parent. And so oftentimes they don't. But that then sadly means that they lose that opportunity to have more information, to know truly about themselves, about where they came from. And that shouldn't be seen as any kind of rejection of their adoption. It's just about learning about themselves. Because if you don't know your roots and your heritage and your beginnings then it's very hard to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just reflecting on that, that there's that emotional moment when you consider the birth families and is this them rejecting the adoption. I really agree with you of what you were saying about wanting to know yourself and part of that includes where you come from and yeah. what that story has been. I think it's a process we all go through of wanting to understand ourselves a bit better. So what kind of things can adoptive parents do to make that process easier for the children? I think for me, what I've come out of from all that experience is that adopters and foster carers need to understand themselves and they need to really reflect on what makes them uncomfortable about situations, what perhaps makes them feel a bit defensive or... You know, what are the things that really challenge them or trigger them? Because those are the things that they need to work through. Mm-hmm. When I've supported carers, when things have been going wrong, quite often, yeah, the child may be challenging, but it's not the impact of the child creating the problems often. It's the response of the carer to what the child's doing. And if what the child was doing didn't trigger the carer, they'd work through it. But because the child is doing something that really feeds into that carer's insecurities or not knowing themselves, then that's when you get the, the problems. And so I think it's really important for us all, you know, and this is a message that sort of is very much woven into becoming a business person, an entrepreneur, is that you can only be successful when you know yourself and you know what your true passions are and your aspirations are. Mm-hmm. And I'm really surprised at the lack of a conversation of that about those aspects within childcare and within becoming foster carers or becoming adopters. But the whole system is really geared to getting them through panel to be approved as foster carers or as approved as adopters, but not so much about what happens after that. Yeah. And that's what I want to build, a sort of resource of information that helps adopters to really 
know what the pitfalls are, know where some of the things that are going to cause problems are going to be raised. Things like the impact on your family. And of course, you do do that in the assessment. At the end of the assessment that I had, I didn't feel now looking back that we had anything like the guidance that we could have had in terms of how the adoption was going to impact on the older children already in the household, because my partner's got two children, how we could support them while making space for the new children. And there's lots of situations that we found ourselves in that I think we could have avoided had we been better guided. The adoptive families don't suddenly spring into existence at the point where they're looking to match with a child they're coming with all their own baggage and their own challenges and I imagine a lot of the parents who are looking to adopt have actually been through quite an emotional process themselves to get to that point yeah absolutely and if there are delays or hiccups then it can be a really emotionally charged and challenging situation and you know being on the other side of it you do realize how much your future happiness and your future life and your life goals are in the hands of somebody else Mm -hmm. and that is quite a challenge the whole process of becoming adopted well being you know being in a process foster carers is challenging and it is you know you feel very vulnerable in parts of it but it's about using those feelings I suppose to sort of help you empathize with the experience of children and young people that have come into the system and have lost relationships or come into a very new situation I think if you are going into adoption with a real understanding of the needs of the child then that will take you a long way gaining as much information and as much training and support as you can sometimes it will be hard because adopted children will present with challenges however young they come into the adoption system because they've experienced loss and trauma and that is the reality but that's also the challenge in terms of parenting in such a way to mitigate all of those experiences and to give a really permanent and stable home to a child. You know, adopting is by far the most enjoyable and satisfying thing that I have ever done. So I don't want people to go away with this thinking it's all doom and gloom because it can be so amazing and you can have a transformational impact on children and young people's lives and you know what's better than that yeah and um I was just thinking as you talked we've kind of covered some of the things that can help the parents as adopters and the children but I'm curious about what wider support networks so extended family and friends what can they do to support that family unit that's being created I think they're crucial you know, we don't parent children in isolation, so my aunties, uncles, grandparents, friends are really important. I think there's an important role in educating yourself about adoption because it's easy to sort of sit on the sideline and think, well, don't know why you've taken this on or whatever bit. I think you can be a really helpful, steadying influence. I think you can offer practical support or maybe it's just about, you know, ringing up your friend or your relative and saying, you know, how are things going? And recognising that they, the adoptive parent or the foster carer, can't tell you and shouldn't tell you all the ins and outs of this child's life and early life and history. 
because that's not their story to share. It's for the child to share, but not making the family feel like they can't talk to you about it. I think it's really important that the child is accepted for who they are, for where they are in their development and welcomed into the family. Yeah, I'm reflecting. When we're going through the process of thinking about becoming parents and wondering what that's going to look like, I think we often get pictures in our mind of what it's going to be like. And I think the people around us get pictures in their minds about what it's going to be like to become grandparents and aunts and uncles. And like you say, sometimes those pictures that you've created don't actually match the reality of what's happening. Are there things that society needs to do to normalize some of these topics of what an adoptive family is and isn't and looks like? I think it's important that we see a a wide range of of examples of adoption. I think it's I think the internet's helpful because actually if, if you do a little bit of digging you can see a whole range of people who are adopting both in this country and beyond who are, you know, single men, um, single women, lesbian and gay, trans, um, from every community that you could ever find and beyond, and adopters with disabilities. So I think it's really important that we see that and that's reflected in our media and it's reflected in the stories that we see uh, during adoption week for example Mm -hmm. but I think it's definitely a process and there is a challenge because some families who are adopting you will not know they're adopting because that's private to them Mm -hmm. and so you won't always necessarily be that aware of it. But I think there's a terrible stereotype of children who've been in the care system, but somehow they've been removed because they're bad or they're naughty or they're difficult children. And that is so far from the truth. They're there because their parents can't care for them. And that's the beginning and the end of it. Mm-hmm. Now, the fact that they may have had experiences that then have an impact on their understanding of how they should behave and how they manage and negotiate the world. But that's not fixed at who they are. That's something that can be changed if they're supported to manage and deal with and talk about their early history and early experiences. So I think it's just important, even if you don't, you know, you know you're never going to adopt and you don't think you're ever going to adopt, I think it's important to just talk about it sometimes. And I think that there are new frames of families that uh, we're developing as, as, as a country or as a culture. For example, great supporter of New Family Social, which is a support network for lesbian and gay and trans adopters and foster carers and they do research every year because they um, have an event celebrating LGBT adoption and fostering and they've identified that one in seven adoptions now are by LGBT people. Wow. So you know what a family looks like is changing and, and it's lovely sometimes when you watch very mainstream adverts for example and you see a whole range of families um, reflected in those adverts that 
you know, even three or four years ago, I don't think you'd ever see that diversity. So I think sometimes the sort of commercial organisations are a bit more forward thinking than the, like the government or social care, because I suppose they reflect what their customers are looking for and their customers are looking for reflections of them in, in the information, the adverts and the products that they put out. Yeah, and I'm loving kind of the reframe that seems to be happening of there can be this image that for some families adoption is the last chance at having a family. But what I'm hearing is actually that it's a beautiful opportunity to create a family that might look slightly different than you'd anticipated, but actually a really beautifully diverse, thoughtfully made family and actually, I think that it's a really gorgeous opportunity to to do that, to, to view a family as more than DNA. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is such an opportunity to bring somebody, bring a child into the fold and the warmth of your family and to watch them grow and flourish and develop. And I think because... I'm not coming from the adoption agency. So I have no preconceived ideas about a particular family is going to be providing a a home for a child or not. I think when you're independent, you can be a bit more honest about Mm -hmm. what the implications are, but also what the benefits are. Whereas I think there's a bit of a challenge for adoptive approving agencies to be as frank as they need to be without putting people off but it's about saying yes it's going to be difficult and for this period it's going to be difficult but actually we think you're going to get through that period and if you are thoughtful and reflective and you get support and advice and guidance and you keep talking to your child and I think if you put in the structures right at the beginning for being a very open family for being a very communicative family then you will get through the challenges and at the end of it you will have a child who's making the best of their opportunities and you know has really blossomed in your care and I can't think of anything that would be more satisfying than that. That for me is what just makes my heart sing really, watching my girls grow and develop and make have aspirations in the world that's just amazing and to me to believe that being a small part of that it's just amazing what what i think if people listening to this are currently thinking about adoption i would say absolutely go for it it's not always going to be easy but it will be an amazing experience we're going to be doing some live sessions around play I'm working with Keely Craw, who is a play therapist, who's going to be doing some sessions around how to spend time with your child, because I think play can be quite loaded sometimes for for adopters and foster carers. We're going to be doing five free sessions online, so I'd really, you know, be interested to hear what other people's experiences are if they come and and, um, spend a half an hour with us it's called let's play a course in relationship based play Mm -hmm. and uh, it's going to be quite a practical 
course that hopefully is going to give people some ideas of things that they can do, time that they can spend with their children. Yeah, it sounds just such a brilliant thing to do in terms of it is the practical support, but that it is also focused on some of the joyful times like playing with your kid. Like you say, it can be really emotionally loading, but when it's going well, it's the best feeling, right? Yeah. Of having that moment of connection where you and your kid are in the same moment. Yeah. And I love that focus on enriching those everyday things, because I think not just for adoptive parents, I think for all of us, when something's challenging, we can get really lost in the challenge like it becomes this big thing that looms over everything and actually one of the things that I do both kind of in my role as a coach and my role as a speech therapist is tuning back into the everyday joy and the everyday fun and the moments where it is amazing because I think once you balance out that challenge and you support people to have the balance between difficult things and the stuff that makes it all worthwhile then it makes the difficult times easier to be resilient in to keep going through because you know that the good stuff's going to come back around as well yeah yeah I think that's absolutely true and as I'm sort of doing a lot of work on mindset and your approach and there's a really strong theme of what you concentrate on the universe sends you back in spades Uh and I wish that I'd known that when I was working with foster carers and adopters because I think that is so true and if you're all you're doing is concentrating on what your child is not doing and why they're not doing this that actually there's so many things that they have done and so many developments that they've made since they've been with you and it's keeping that in focus Mm -hmm. rather than all of the negatives not sort of underplaying you know and obviously keeping everyone safe but if you're just having to remind yourself well actually I need to remember where he where he or she was and where they came and how much progress they've made. Yeah one of the people that I've been working with lately had It was such a simple but brilliant suggestion for those moments. With her children, she keeps a little diary. And every time a good thing happens, whether that's from the star of the week at school all the way through to brush their teeth without complaining about it, (laughs) she writes it in this little diary that she's got. So in those moments where she is feeling low and it's all feeling like hard work and a bit of a struggle, She's actually got something physical that she can go back to and look at all the things she celebrated about her children as well, the times they succeeded. And it also is this lovely record of the growth, right? Like you say of actually six months ago, they couldn't brush their teeth and now I'm having a hard day because they won't do this. But actually they're brushing their teeth every day now. Like (laughs) we cracked that one we'll get through this one. And I just thought it's so simple to sit down at the end of the day and write what the good things are. But like you say as well, by bringing your attention to that, you see it more and more. You see the progress and the joy and the amazing qualities because you're looking out for them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And um, that gets you through, doesn't it? Yeah. Like you say, the difficult times, that gets you through.
there, what Yoni and I were talking about is something called confirmation bias. Put simply, our brains have the tendency to search out, interpret, favour and store any information that confirms or supports our beliefs or values. And this is often strongest when we're either really attached to the outcome or it's an emotionally charged issue or one of those sneaky self-limiting beliefs. So if you think that you're seeing a lot of evidence supporting one side of a belief and none on the reverse, then that's a really good sign that this bias might be showing up in your life. Finding a way of spotlighting the other side of the belief, the value or the prediction you're making about the future can help keep this in check. Now that's not just important for resilience, it can also help us make clear decisions, set boundaries or get ourselves into action when we've been stuck for a really long time. We talked about keeping a diary in the interview and that might be something that works for you. But if you're looking for more strategies, don't forget to come find us in our Facebook group, Port in the Storm. week we'll be talking to Caroline Steele, a GP partner with personal experience of burning out. Now burnout's a topic close to my heart having lived it at least three times so I'm excited to hear Caroline's insights and also to learn more about her calling towards making women's lives more sustainable. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I do. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mel Robinson.